Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Simon Presley, the founder of Propertyology. Simon is a buyer's agent and investment property specialist, but also a research analyst as well. We chat to Simon about how he picks his growth areas and all the metrics and drivers that go into them. Simon's regularly quoted in the media and is quite an expert on finding growth areas, particularly in regional locations. Here's Simon. Simon Presley, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Mike. Thank you for having us on. Wonderful. Now, I just wanted to get a bit of a bio and uh, and get you beating your own drum if, if we can. So so tell us a little bit about who, who you are and, and what you do and what you specialise in. Okay. So I'm the, I'm the founder of Propertyology. Um, we're a business that helps mum and dad property investors. Uh, my background is in commercial lending. Um, so I've always had a keen interest in economics. Um, I started investing in property to at a very young age, um, and uh, I've got a professional services background as well. But quite a while back, we recognised that there was a, a, a large gap um, in Australia where there was no real professional body um, that could help mum and dads uh, invest in properties right throughout Australia at an arm's length basis. So um, that's the objective, is to help people do that with, with trust and skill. And, and you were so passionate about that notion that you went on to invent a word and uh, named your business after it, that being propertyology. So that's really the, the study of property markets and you sort of draw a parallel between, between that and, say, the stock market. Yeah, um, so propertyology, obviously, it's a play on words. It's, it's our word. Um, but we feel very strong that there is a science to uh, understanding property markets in the same way that I'm sure stock brokers around the world would say there's a science to share markets. What's important for everyone who's got an interest in investing in property is to understand that what, humans are full of emotion and we all live somewhere and a lot of those emotions that we attach to our own home and where we would or wouldn't live can significantly influence the decision to where we might invest um, we need to separate those two things completely. So, so we see property as a financial instrument. Um, we don't get involved with the family home. We're only involved with the uh, with the property investor. So there's a there's a heavy um, connection with our, in our research with economics, um, and I guess that's that's tied to our name, propertyology. Yeah, and we want to certainly dive into to some of that that property economics and your methodology as well. Just uh, so we can get a, to, to know you a little bit, uh, I want to know what sort of posters were given Prime Real Estate on the uh, on the Presley bedroom wall as a kid. <laughs> Look, as uh, I love sport, um, I particularly love uh, the AFL. Um, passionate support of the Brisbane Lions, been a proud uh, full member about twenty five years, I think it is uh, now. <laughs> Um, I won't miss a home game and I enjoy taking my beautiful 10-year-old son along uh, and um, one of the most exciting days of my life was being live at the MCG for the 2001 Grand Final, which was um, Brisbane Lions' first premiership success uh, and then and then enjoyed um, two more uh, premierships after that. So. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you are an educated investor. That one certainly paid off. Let, let's hope that uh, it pays off for you in the long term again. Absolutely. Let's hope so. so. So how did you get started with property and what was your first investment? Uh, how I got started with property? Look, um, as I said earlier, I, you know, I started a, a career in uh, commercial finance. I always had um, an interest in, in economics. Um, raised in a, in a household that was full of 
love and morals, um, but blue collar uh, mum and dad uh, did it tough. And it wasn't until my late teens, early 20s that I really appreciated how, how much they struggled um, and would often reflect on how could that be? You know, they're hardworking, um, above average intelligence. And then I started to actually consider other aunties and uncles and grandparents and that sort of stuff and realised that actually most Australians end up um, towards the end of their working life um, with a little bit of echo in a family home, a bit of superannuation that employers have contributed towards, but not much else. Um, and I recognise this is a problem. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and today we're confronted every single day. We hear... We hear a federal treasurer talk about, I can't balance the books, and my biggest expense is age pensions. Um, it doesn't actually need to be that way. Australians are quite intelligent, earn reasonable money, um, but what we're not good at is making financial decisions. So um, I was determined to make sure that as I got older and had a family that um, we didn't have the struggles that mum and dad did. Um, so I've always been responsible um, and enjoy helping others uh, do something similar. Fantastic. Now, now, you've said that you're a big believer in treating property as a financial instrument, which you just sort of touched on there. What do you mean by that exactly and why is that such an important point to make? Yeah, uh, and it's critical for anyone looking to invest. It's a great question, Mike. Look, we all live somewhere um, and that dwelling you know, is predominantly chosen due to our personal tastes, whether it's a house, whether it's an apartment, the colour schemes, uh, um, the style of the of the fit out, whether it's Art Deco or bold colours or um, antique furniture or whatever it is, they're, they're subjective things and, and that's our right. But what we like isn't necessarily what everyone else likes. Um, the analogy that we use for clients, um, four people could go to the same restaurant, be given the same menu, one's going to order steak, another chicken, another seafood and another vegetarian. Um, no one's right or wrong there. So when it comes to property, think of it that way as well. Don't make decisions on where to invest because you could or could not see yourself living there because that's not your objective. Your objective is to make money. So when we say we see financial uh, property as a financial instrument, it is a very similar process to a share investor. Uh, a sh an astute share investor hopefully would be a lot more sophisticated than say, I buy stocks in this company because I like that change of the logo. Yeah. Or I've got a banking background, so therefore I've got four stocks, CBA, ANZ, Westpac or NAB. Yeah. They've actually got thousands of companies on the stock exchange and, and logos and industries and all those sort of things um, really have a small influence on whether it's a good investment or not. So property, C is shelter. It's a commodity at the end of the day. It's an essential commodity that we all we all need. We need a roof over our head. Why we have such an, in, an interest in economics is because logic says that wherever in the future there'll be demand for more jobs, there'll also be demand for more shelter. Wherever we have a location that, that has plenty of jobs and housing is also very affordable, um, you know, that also gives us a chance for greater demand. And affordability, we believe, is the number one influence on demand, not desire. They're the emotional things that we often like about a property, but actually not everyone can afford. Yeah, and I, I do want to get into those drivers and the economics and the hot spotting. But first, I just wanted to, to chat to you about your focus on helping people to achieve an adequate retirement asset, asset balance. That, that That's really sort of, I guess, a point of difference that I see um, with, with your content and your marketing and that sort of thing. It's also a part of your, your business specifically. How important is this to you when working with your clients? 
Yeah, look, it's very important. And again, there's a lot of uh, similarities, I think, with what propertyology does for someone who's interested in the property asset class um, to what an astute stockbroker might do for someone who prefers shares. Um, so we see it as a financial instrument. We're big believers in diversifying. Australia, if you like, is the equivalent of our stock exchange. Within Australia, there are 550 local government authorities. If you like, that's equivalent to 550 companies on the stock exchange. And our role as a property investor, instead of buying a share in a company, it's a share in a community. Again, we're trying to think differently to the house and land that we might might go home to live in um, at, at night. Um, different locations throughout Australia have different economic profiles. So, you know, having an understanding of, of industry, of business, which industries have a healthy outlook, which industries don't have a healthy outlook, um, directly influences where we recommend people to invest and not to invest. When we're working directly with clients, we're trying to tailor our philosophies, locations that we're actively investing in at that time to their personal circumstances. So if, for example, someone's got a family home in Sydney, um, an investment property in, I don't know, Newcastle, um, and they're looking to, uh, they can afford to uh, buy two more properties, already we're sort of saying, You've got a heavy focus there on the state of New South Wales yeah. and none anywhere else. So, But that still leaves seven states and territories throughout Australia. Um, what are the individual industries that are, have a heavy influence on, say, Sydney and Newcastle? And we're trying to complement their portfolio. Um, that enables that individual investor to take advantage of more opportunities uh, to minimise land taxes um, and to minimise risk by picking locations that have a different industry mix each and every time. And that's a really interesting notion that you, you, you raised there, that you're making an investment in a, in a community. It's an interesting way to, to put it. And for your sake, I hope these, uh, these council mergers don't uh, go and ruin your, your, your research too much. I, I read something about you sort of uh, getting a few grey hairs over, you know, that sort of altering some of your, your strategy there. Um, yeah, the New South Wales uh, recent council mergers sort of caused some challenges with a number of spreadsheets. Uh, <laughs> Merged, merged data and that sort of stuff. I'm sure you'll be all right. Now, you've uh, you've talked a little bit about your secret source and you specifically mentioned 41 individual characteristics that you track. Now, of course, um, like the Colonel, we're not expecting to get all of that from you today. Um, but you, 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 how, how did you land on this number and, and how much of it is, say, demographics versus supply, for example? Yeah. Uh, look, it's not, it's not a magic number. It's just that this happened to add up to about 41. But uh, some of those, um, you know, when you're really drilling down to find an individual property within a identified location, some of those 41 ingredients relate to more of the asset selection. Most of the 41 relate to the things that we consider to pick, you know, a specific town or city in the first place. So there's really, if you like, think of a property market of having three engines. There's the things that influence demand. There's the things that influence supply. And there's also the things that influence sentiment. Um, the, the degree of confidence um, within a community. So um, without rattling off all 41 on the, on the demand side of things, uh, it, it's, it's things like migration policies, um, interstate migration. It's a number of things to do with the economy. Um, it's things to do with affordability. And it can be some things to do with, with taxes as well, um, policies um, in different states um, or federally at time to time, which can have a positive or negative impact on demand for housing. Um, the supply side of things, uh, a lot of things there that relate to the construction industry. So it's um, 
uh, it's a current um, supply in that particular market. Um, it's it's things like building approvals. It's things like zoning changes and and governments releasing more land, um, for example. All these things influence supply. Um, the the sentiment side of things. Um, look, the confidence in say Sydney, for example, is a lot higher at the moment than what it is in in Perth at the moment. That will yeah. change from the time. And there are things that directly affect that um, degree of confidence. Um, state elections can have a positive or negative effect on things. Um, the individual um, industries, obviously, you know, Perth's heavily weighted towards iron ore and gas, um, and it's not going through a good a good cycle at the moment. So confidence is is low there. There can be other other times when there's proposals and, and changes to a community that um, start to lead to uh, excitement within a community. Yeah, and, and just getting back to supply for a second, you you, you label it as a growth suppressant. And yeah. uh, I just wanted to sort of chat to you about building approval specifically. How important are they when selecting a, a location? And, and what are some of the problems with that when we're, we're looking at the time that it takes to construct a dwelling, comparing those back to those figures? I think the supply side of the of the three engines I described there is the most underrated, but arguably the most important, uh, you know, thing that property um, investors should consider. Um, the the hard thing with construction, Mike, is it's not just what you can see with your eyes. You know, we can all drive around our home city, and we, you know, we can form an opinion as to whether it's undersupplied or oversupplied at the moment. But there's actually a lot of information there that, about that community to do with supply that you can't see. Um, so that that's the actions that are occurring behind the scenes of the construction industry. If there's a really high volume of uh, new dwellings that have been approved within a short period of time by a particular government, well, you're not going to see evidence of that by driving around. Mm. Um, progressively, as, as an approval becomes a commencement, you, you'll see a hole being dug or a big crane going up in the sky. Um, if you've made a decision to buy there, you know, six months earlier, well, it's too late if all of a sudden you think, gee, I didn't realise there was going to be a 1,000 apartments, you know, in, in the same community I just invested in. Um, but even even then, there, there could be lots of projects that are currently a warehouse um, or what looks like a farm or something like that that, in you know, a couple of years to come could be a, a lot of um, extra dwellings, a lot more than that community would typically construct in a particular year. So... Um, what we do, um, you know, first we look for the, for the drivers on the demand side, but before giving a location the green light, we cross-reference the things that are in the supply pipeline. So building approval volumes are very important to that. Yeah, and, and I'm guessing that you focus a little bit more on, on houses sometimes because it's difficult for an extreme amount of supply to come on the market because you can't generally put 200 units next to a next to a house, although I've seen a couple of examples. Um, with your your infographic, I wanted to have a chat about that. So you've got a great info uh, infographic which we'd, we'd love to share, which has you know supply, demand, and sentiment. Um, we, we've covered supply. Um, can we have a, a bit of a chat about demand and what are the key sort of sub-drivers within demand that, that you look at when you're giving green lights to locations? Yeah, and I think demand often gets confused by another word starting with D, uh, desire. They're not the same. Yeah. But, but often the property investor, and this is what this is what emotion does to us, but often we're not always aware that that's what's going on um, in the brain. So we can see something and think that looks nice. That's desire. Um, we, we can all relate to why 
a lot of people might like to live in Bondi, for example, uh, near the beach and the, and the cafes and that sort of stuff. But it's actually not high demand at all. A very small percentage of Australia's population live in Bondi, not because it's undesirable, but because it's low demand. It's expensive. Yeah. Um, and this is what property does to us. We start, whether we're conscious of it or not, we start to think about, I, I can see the attraction to that. I can see, we, and we feel like we can see the growth. We, we actually can't. Um, yeah. But that's a moment talking to us so the biggest driver of demand is affordability we can all aspire to, to want something a particular property but if we can't afford it it's just not accessible so the more affordable our, our community is the more accessible it is to a greater number of people and the greater potential for growth over the longer term the affordability side of things it's also extremely important to be conscious that right here and now 2017 interest rates have never been lower in this country so big cities like like sydney and melbourne for example have had um, significant periods of growth that no other city has, has seen over the last few years helped along by these incredibly low interest rates exactly but what might happen if at some point in the future we added just one percent to that household mortgage where in sydney that household mortgage might be eight hundred thousand on a typical $1 million home. 1% increase on a household budget with an $800,000 mortgage is gonna have a lot bigger impact than other communities where that same mortgage might be three hundred dollars or $400,000. And we're about to see that. I mean, the, the markets are pricing in interest rate movements in an upward direction in, in 2018. So I think we're gonna be able to see how that plays out. And, and certainly we've got some people that are pretty exposed with, with massive mortgages that are, that are gonna see some stress for sure. I just wanted to, to, to touch on a point you made about affordability. You're, you're well known for sourcing property way below the median price in places like Sydney. In fact, you mm. probably get two for, for, the, for the median price of Sydney in, in regional locations. Is there a reason why you favour regionals over and above the price of entry difference and, and the sort of competition at that price point? Yeah, look, we're not... Um I understand that perception. We're not anti-capital city. Um, what we are is we're big believers that um, over the longer term, so property is a long-term asset class. We need to make decisions with a, say, 10 to 15-year uh, buy and hold outlook in our, in our opinion, um, unless you're a developer or a renovator, and that's really not investing. That's more a business transaction. So, so with that in mind, history has taught us, um, historical evidence has taught us that the locations that have performed better, a common denominator amongst them has been affordability. Sydney and Melbourne, if we disregarded the last four years, have been amongst the worst performing capital cities in Australia. Officially, Sydney's been the, the worst performing capital city in Australia over the last 15 years. Uh, people forget what happened before the last. It's easy to forget when you look at the core logic figures that come out that basically just blow your hair back. Yeah, yeah. So we're not anti-capital cities, Mike. What we are is um, placing a heavy emphasis on affordability, and that just happens to open up a lot of regional um, cities. That's not to say that every regional uh, centre is a is a good investment. But we could say the same about capital cities. Perth and Darwin are you know now in their third year of uh, of declining property value. So a capital city doesn't make it blue chip. Um, at the end of the day. Every state and territory in Australia, you can only have one capital city. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that that city is better or worse than some of the regions. In fact, in a lot of cases, 
um, the fundamentals might be better in, in, in some regional locations. So what we're looking for is affordability, um, but we're also looking for regional centres that have all the essential infrastructure that all sustainable communities need. Quality retail facilities, tertiary education for those who, who, who require that before they enter the workforce, uh, good healthcare facilities, um, that's essential for all communities. You don't need to be a capital city to have those. And we look for economic diversity. Um, we won't invest in a regional location that's just a one-industry town, for example, even though that, that one industry might have a healthy outlook for the foreseeable future, no industry runs, runs hot forever. And um, as, a ca as a case in point, you highlighted uh, Hobart as a growth market. Now, of course, Hobart has a pretty low price of entry, even compared with some regional towns. Um, it's a capital city as well, so it's, it's proof in point that you don't avoid capital cities. What was yep. it about Hobart that you saw, and, and, and how can we relate that to other markets when we're doing our own research? Yeah, Hobart is a wonderful success story and a, and a great city for investors to learn from. So Propertyology um, gave Hobart our official green light in April 2014, so three years ago. At that point in time, uh, Tasmania as a, as a whole had had several years of uh, miserable economic performance. And I was as guilty as anybody um, on occasions describing it as an economic basket case. Yeah, and high unemployment. I mean, that was, that was a real yeah. concern for a long time. Yeah, but investing is about... Not that anyone can give us a guarantee or no one's got a crystal ball, including propertyology, but it is key to making a good decision is to look into the future um, by taking an interest of the things that will shape it. Um, so the past is the past. So we, we felt that we had a good understanding of why Tasmania had had its challenges, but in doing that, we also gained confidence about its ability uh, or its potential to improve. Um, so we could see improvement. Um, probably late 2013, Hobart, we started to take an interest in as a research company um, and we developed a better understanding of it um, and the more we looked at it, the more confident we got that its economy is going to improve. Um, with that, job creation, confidence. So it comes back to the things we said earlier. Um, economics leads to demand for shelter. Um, sentiment is, is, has, a, has a big influence on property markets. We looked at the supply side of things. Um, the, um, the vacancy rate, which is a very basic statistic, was already really tight. Yeah. Building approval volumes were already very low. Um, and there was no suggestion that the local construction industry was about to ramp that up. Um, so it was really, it was a no-brainer in the end. The trouble is, is investors don't take the time out to study the fundamentals of any location until the media starts talking it up. By the time they start talking it up, it's often too late anyway. Yeah, exactly. um, so we, we ignored what the general consensus was saying about it and just focused on what the fundamentals told us. Um, here and now today, propertyology has helped probably a little a little more than 70 people um, invest in a property in Hobart. Wow. Um, 2014 and 15, um, you know, those who we got in in those years, the market there was dead flat. So we, were, we, we didn't have buyer competition. Um, our investors were benefiting from some significant discounts on, on the purchase price. Um, now, here and here now today in, uh, what are we, March 2017, I think officially Hobart is the hottest market in Australia, including Sydney and Melbourne. Um, you cannot buy a property in Hobart. We're still, we're still trying to, um, but there are, every day there's less on the market, there's more people looking to buy them. 
Um, for every 10 properties we express interest in, we might miss out on nine. Um, we think we're at the early stage of a growth cycle. Um, so that, that to us is the best example of understanding fundamentals and making a decision um, based on those rather than what the broader public are saying. And it is funny that uh, there is a bit of an announcement effect when we actually see the runs on the board. I mean, it's obviously great that, that you're getting in before that happens, but but CoreLogic was, was showing us the runs on the board, the mainstream media have picked it up, and there is a flood of people people getting into it. You, you, you talked about research before and investors sort of not doing that research. Investors are, are often buying properties in their own suburb or at least an area that they're familiar with. I, I guess playing devil's advocate and, and being fair, they're investing in a place that they know fairly well, so it's positive from, from a research point to a degree, but how important is it to broaden that search? Yeah, look, there's a big difference, Mike, between knowing our neighbourhood, which I think we all would admit that we know our neighbourhood unless we just just moved in, versus knowing a market. Most Australians actually know very little about their market, um, but of course we're not going to admit that, you know, to ourselves. If if we know, if we truly know our market, um, we will know uh, the breakup of um, different industries that you know provide the jobs in the community that we live in. We will know things about household age and, and household income. Um, we will know about the current rate of uh, supply and what's in the supply pipeline. I'll put it to you that very few of 24 million Australians actually know those things about their market. What they know is their neighbourhood. They know where the streets are. They know where the cafes are. They know where to fill up the, the car with petrol. There's a big there's a big difference there. Yeah. Um, it probably gives us a sense of we feel like we're safe because we can drive there. But think, think about that through the eyes of a share investor. Are they going to invest in CBA just because they've got a bank account with CBA? Is that doing the best that they can? Or is it better to stand back and take some time to try to understand this asset class? There's a big difference between reading and research. Uh, With the internet these days, there's that much information out there. Um, But let's not be fooled into thinking that we can spend X number of hours uh, on Dr. Google and all of a sudden become an expert um, in this very complex um, asset class called property, any more than we could spend a lot of time on Dr. Google thinking we're going to become a GP um, yeah. after a number of hours on, on, our, on our laptop. So, Although we do give it a red-hot go, don't we? And you, you've only... Yeah, give it a go. <laughs> and you've only got to go to any uh, barbecue and you'll, you'll get uh, certainly plenty of advice on uh, real estate markets. I've actually never heard anyone second-guessing their ability to, to analyse a real estate market. It can be a bit of a minefield, can't it? Yeah, there'll never be a shortage of experts when it comes to property. Yeah, Everyone's got an opinion. So you're an advocate in, of investing in, in mini capital cities, which I guess we, we touched on, you know, regional centres versus capital cities, but th- there's, a, there's a point where there's kind of a, a hybrid nature of it when you look at the, the drivers. So, you know, regional centres that aren't too reliant on one industry like, like a capital city isn't. Can you give us some examples of those? Yeah, and there's, there's actually a lot more of them than people realise. Probably, uh, if I would guess, 40 to 50 uh, locations throughout Australia wow. that we would consider to be mini capital cities. So in no particular order, I'm just going to visualise a, a map of Australia in my head. Let's start at the top of the country and come down the coast. Um, we've got Cairns, Townsville, Mackay, Rockhampton, Gladstone, Harvey Bay, um, uh, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, Toowoomba. Um, that's just Queensland. There's probably a dozen locations I've named there. New South Wales has probably got just as many. Um, on the coast, you've got um, you've got Byron Bay, you've got Coffs Harbour, 
Uh, you've got Port Macquarie, you've got Wollongong, you've got Newcastle, uh, inland New South Wales, um, some wonderful opportunities for investors in there in no particular order. Um, you've got Tamworth, uh, Dubbo, Orange, Armadale, um, Bathurst, Wagga. Um, these locations have good quality infrastructure, good lifestyles, very affordable housing. And a lot of a case, in a lot of cases, they have more controlled housing supply than what these big cities uh, have shown over the last couple of years. Uh, Victoria doesn't have as many, um, but you've still got the likes of Geelong, Bathurst, Bendigo, uh, Shepparton. Um, South Australia would probably have the least. Um, uh, I think its biggest city outside of Adelaide is Wyala, uh, and it would be a stretch to call it a mini, a mini capital city. Um, Western Australia, you've got places like Geraldton, uh, Albany, Bunbury, um, they're probably the main ones. Uh, Tasmania is um, uh, Launceston, Devonport and Burnie. So there's a lot, isn't there? There certainly is. And we've just got a bit of an insight into the rain man-like approach you, you take to property markets. And there's, there's obviously a lot of information floating around in that noggin of yours, which makes me want to ask the question, can the average investor hope to select growth property markets themselves or do they realistically need an expert? Hmm. Look, I've been doing this for many years. Uh, I I reckon I spend 40 hours a week every week research-related topics, and I know I know I don't know it all. You never you never know it all. So it, it won't stop investors trying, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you don't know what you don't know. And if you're doing something um, every so often, a couple of hours a day. Um, every four or five years when you feel that you can, you're getting close to affording to invest, I'd, I'd suggest that um, the odds of you stumbling across a really good location compared to someone that does it all day, the odds aren't great. And something that muddies the water that we talked about before is, is sentiment, specifically the media. What influence do you think the media has on property markets and is that a, a, a source for good or evil? Um, I'm sure there's no evil. In, well, I like think there's no evil intended, um, but more often than not, it's it's unhelpful the the role the media play, and um, not just with property, with a with a lot of things, uh, just current affairs in general. I think um, what's the saying a lot of journos use: if it if it bleeds, it reads. Right. Um, they they tend to use the glass half empty rather than the glass half full approach. Um, I'm very much a glass half full personality. Um, and because I said earlier, um, yeah, there's so much information on the media, which a large percentage of it isn't produced by experts in the field, it's produced by mainstream media, um, it's the public that's consuming this. And if they read something um, uh, over and over again, um, what that, I think that the way the brain processes that information is, oh, it must be true, this thing keeps popping up. Mm. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good quality information, it just means it's been repeated a lot. For example, our home city of Brisbane, um, you know, throughout Sydney and Melbourne's boom, um, we've constantly uh, heard the so-called experts say, well, Brisbane's going to boom as well. And and our understanding of property markets, uh, we had a completely different view up to that. Um, and, our, and our reputation um, suggests that we were right and the so-called experts weren't. Um, Brisbane, whilst it hasn't been horrible, 
Um, it's been underwhelming. Um, two to four percent growth each year for the last four years is a long way from a boom that many people predicted. Yeah, and I mean there are certainly some pockets of Brisbane that have done very well, but I think as far back as maybe two, three, four years ago, it was interesting to see the media really did jump on Brisbane. I, I guess if I had to sort of surmise the reason, it had a historically long period of, of uninspiring growth. The median house price compared to Sydney and Melbourne was a lot lower. So do you think those were some of the two factors that the media kind of thought, well, here, here is my sort of desktop analysis and, and let's go all in on it? Oh, I think it just highlight the Brisbane story just highlighted how little uh, a lot of people uh, know about property, including the so-called experts. Um, uh, Melbourne and Sydney had also had you know prolonged periods of miserable performance post GFC, uh, and I think um, uh, often people have a too simplistic view about property markets. So uh, it, it's it's likely they think a property market performance like a common cold. Sydney's had it, Melbourne's caught it next. Therefore, Brisbane has <laughs> it after that. Um, you know, well, why wouldn't it just keep going up the coast? Uh, you know, those regional cities, cities that we described earlier, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, that was a shame. Uh, I was about to jump all in on Darwin and Perth. That's <laughs> uh, more economic. Uh, you know, economics have the biggest influence. And three, four years ago, when everyone was saying Brisbane has to go because it's more affordable than Sydney and Melbourne, have a think about that statement. Every location in Australia is more affordable than Sydney and Melbourne. So... Um, why, why wouldn't all of Australia boom? Mm. Um, and the fact is that nothing other than Sydney and Melbourne uh, did boom and, and until in the last 12, 18 months, Hobart's really really taken off. So um, employment indicators are the most in, most useful bit of information to property investors, not property data. The property data is in the rear vision mirror. It's behind us. Um, taking an interest in economics gives us some insight in, in, into what might happen in future years. And, and getting into some, uh, some, some economic policy, you, you've written extensively about negative gearing and the impacts of any wine back. You, you've actually sort of commented to say that you're not worried about it for your portfolio because you think it may actually put upward pressure on prices. C- can you give us a bit of a brief summary of your, your views on the topic and, and, uh, and reference age pension, if you will, because that's another topic that you've discussed in, in, in reference to negative gearing? Yeah, look, I think the negative gearing debate, now look, it's a hot one. We haven't heard the end of it, unfortunately. It's a misunderstood topic, and and uh, both sides of government did a terrible job at explaining that in the uh, in the last federal election. I don't think they tried to explain it. Uh, they're more interested in, in winning votes and whatever they felt they had to say. Um, at the end of the day, negative gearing is a policy that's been around in Australia for well over 80 years. Um, it's not a tax policy. Uh, it was actually its origins way back 80 years ago related to recognising something back then that's still just as relevant, if not more relevant today, and that is that um, governments can't – sorry, not everyone has the financial capacity or the will to buy their own home. Um, that's not unique to Australia. That's that's worldwide. And governments in over 80 years ago didn't have the financial capacity to provide all those dwellings for residents of Australia who didn't already own one themselves. Um, as the population started to grow, the problem became even bigger. And unless the um, unless the, the nation was prepared to cop uh, massive tax rises to create funding to, 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 to supply uh, more rental stock, um, how would they do that? So that's where negative gearing, well, that's the motive as to why it was created. 
somewhere over the over the generations it's changed its name and was given this term negative gearing um negative gearing is uh, applicable for all asset classes you know um and people forget the, that don't they with with the, with the shares and that sort of thing it's it, it applies absolutely. to everything yes. investors uh, benefit from negative gearing every business in australia um publicly listed uh private company small business home offices um you can claim the expenses associated with that business's ability to earn income as a tax deduction. And that's all the property investor is doing. If you like, their business is to provide accommodation to someone else. They've got to declare the revenue received and, and they can claim the expenses associated directly with that. Um, if that equation is a negative figure, if it's a loss, um, it's offset against other incomes. Uh, businesses, if they incur a loss, they can carry forward that loss uh, next year and offset it against a, prop, uh, a profit. Um, it's really no different. Um, but when you have a, a period where a property market such as Sydney um, performs extremely well um, in a city that has more Australians than anywhere else, it becomes a political topic. Mm. And everyone starts blaming negative gearing for the cause of it and all these rich people are driving it up. Well, if negative gearing caused uh, that for Sydney, then the opposite also applies, doesn't it? Why, why is uh, negative gearing not responsible for driving down prices in places like Perth and Darwin? For example, um, it's a it's a it's been a poorly debated topic. Um, at the end of the day, uh, our view as a property investment business, what will be will be. It will always be important for Australians to invest. If you don't take control of your own financial future, you are setting yourself up for a lifestyle that will be funded by a measly government-funded pension, of which value keeps decreasing each year. And so you need to. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, when you look at some of the figures of, of, of retirement pensions, I mean, I look at it myself and sort of shudder with fear. I have notions of, of maybe seeing the world or having a having a nice glass of wine. It, it doesn't look good for, for people that aren't investing in, in their future, does it? No, and uh, as a society, um, we all got to take responsibility for that. We don't teach financial literacy. Um, oh, I remember in grade one, uh, Representative Commonwealth Bank coming out and, and helping us all open up a, a dolomite account and talk <laughs> about the importance of, uh, of putting money aside and, and saving for bigger things. But it stopped there. It did. Um, and I mean, and to be cynical, they got a hell of a lot of bank accounts out of that. But I think the payoff was, was worth it. I mean, we, we had a conversation about financial literacy at a, at a young age. And there are certainly some people that are saying that, you know, financial habits are ingrained in you when you sort of up to around eight or nine years old, you really get an idea about how money works and, and your notions of it are, are, are formed. I, I'd love to see more of that in school, certainly. Yeah, we just we just don't teach it. Um, even the basics of um, you know living within our means and uh, the power of compounding and, and really basic things that you know uh, I think someone in grade five or six could probably comprehend if, if we actually taught them, but we don't. Um, what our education system uh, uh, teaches, I think, is um, is gives us skills to earn money. Um, you know the things that we take an interest in in high school. Um, often directly influence what career path we, we, we take. Um, we use it education to, to earn a living, but uh, very little thought is actually given to, well, what happens when I uh, no longer want to work or no longer capable of working? So we spent, the average Australian spends 20 years of our life learning, uh, 45 years of our life earning, 
and we get to the age 65 and uh, then spend the rest of our years retired on whatever miserable amount of money we've got. 45 years is a long time. Mm, it's about to go up too, potentially. But we do very little with it. I think um, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, live for today and we'll worry about tomorrow when we get there, and that's everyone's right if they want to do that. Um, but it's not sustainable. The uh, the country cannot afford to, you know, with a, with a growing population and an ageing population, to keep making taxpayer-funded pensions um, for us. At the end of the day, it's not worth much money anyway. Um, so why would we why would we, we would want uh, to retire on that? I uh, I don't know. Yeah, and I guess it's in the the nation's interest to to try and encourage people to put money aside. Obviously, they've done that with superannuation from from back in the day. But of course, investing in in property or, or, or shares is a fantastic way to lessen the financial burden of the age pension because less people are going to qualify if they're successful investors, aren't they? Spot on, Mike, and um, that's why we should be encouraging investing, but yet from time to time, including the negative gearing debate, um, I don't know how you encourage someone to do anything by whacking him over the head with a stick. Mm. <laughs> uh, we hear about uh, principles of teaching. There's the stick or the carrot approach. To me, if you want to encourage a, a, a positive behaviour, uh, you lead with a carrot. If you want to stamp something out, well, you use the stick. Um, so in a society where we need to encourage investing, we start contemplating taking away incentives such as negative gearing. I don't understand the logic. It's an interesting point, and I noticed an article just just yesterday, which this podcast will come out a little bit later, but it was um, by the head of the Urban Development Institute of Australia talking exactly about that, that there is a, a stick mentality to developers where there needs to be a little bit more carrot. You know, property is very highly taxed when we talk about getting supply on. Uh, there really needs to be, I think, a rethink of that. Would you agree? Oh, look, I would, but it's probably been a, um, an important topic for, I don't know, 40, 50 years yeah. that uh, uh, the nation has funded billions of dollars on all sorts of reviews and studies and, and very rarely do we actually, at the end of those, you know, um, big white papers, um, very few things actually get implemented. A couple of wasn't consultants the, have probably done really well out of it. They probably have, but wasn't <laughs> the GSP the tax that was supposed to replace all taxes? Mm. Yeah, that didn't work out too well. <laughs> so, uh, Simon, I just wanted to, to sort of wrap up by, by asking what, what exactly your business, Propertyology, does uh, to help property investors and, and what your point of difference is and, and, and if we can get some advice on, on how people can get in touch with you. Okay, thank you, Mike. Um, so, look, Propertyology, our office is in Brisbane. Our market is Australia. Um, our core business involves studying property markets literally all over the country every single day. Um, the purpose behind uh, such a big investment in that ongoing um, market analysis um, is to partner up with motivated mum and dad investors um, who see value in working with true professionals. Um, so in engaging our buyer's agency service, you're, you're directly benefiting from our full-time market research as well as our award-winning buyer's agency skills. Um, and you, you, you can then form a relationship with a professional organisation that's in your corner. Each and every time you can afford to invest, um, you get to directly tap into um, where it is that we think at that time has better potential. Fantastic. And if people do want to get in touch with you, what, what's the best way, Simon? Best start would be our website. There's a wealth of information on www.propertyology.com.au um, or 1300 
654070. We'll share some some data there at the end of the podcast as, as well. Just to, to wrap up, Simon, if you could impart one piece of advice, I know this might be tricky, what would it be? One piece of advice. If you are looking to invest in property, you need to view it as a financial instrument, treat it as shelter, and study the things that influence shelter as opposed to whether you would or would not live in, in a particular property or particular community. That sounds like a pretty good way to round out the, the podcast. Simon, uh, thanks very much for your time. Much appreciated. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Cheers.